No sex. That's all I can think about now. Now, I kind of knew it would come to this. I knew it. What were those people all wearing Reeboks and black shrouds? The ones in San Diego that were waiting for the spaceship? People say, people say AA is an occult. I think so. Uh, let's see what's true. Um, I was raised in Alcoholics Anonymous, something I don't recommend. Um, my father's 45 years sober. When I was six years old, he got sober. Or sober happened to him, I think is more what happens around here. And, uh, and I got raised in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. 45 years ago, there weren't many meetings around, so my parents went around and started meetings. Uh, I've had a couple of conversations a short time I've been here, you know, talking to some people about where they're from. And yet one person was Culver City, and, and my dad started a meeting. My dad and my mother started a meeting that had its 43rd anniversary here just recently. And uh, we went to it. My mom and dad both spoke. They had an AA meeting and an Al-Anon meeting right next to each other. And the way that meeting got started is my father was going around asking churches if they could hold AA meetings, and they would say, no, we don't want those people. People with a moral weakness of that magnitude don't belong here. So they were having a hard time finding places that would, that would allow them to have AA meetings. So on this one occasion, he took my mother along with him. They met the board of directors of the church, and he walked up and he gave his little pitch about recovery and bringing him back from the dead, all of this stuff, and they just nodded. My mother got up there and said the key word, family. Family. And they said, well, we can do that. So the Al-Anon people started that AA meeting, and, uh, and that meeting still lives. And it was a real treat to be able to go there and listen to my mother and father both talk about the beginning of that meeting. But I got raised in the kitchens. In that particular meeting, I used to sit in the kitchen with a woman whom they hired named Emily that would make the coffee and bring out the donuts, and I'd help her bring out the donuts and the coffee. And so I've heard all the pitches, and I've been to all the barbecues and now I know why we were always going to Bakersfield. It was a Southern California convention. Why the hell would you go to Bakersfield anyway, you know? And, uh, and so I knew that you people weren't a bunch of old people in overcoats hanging on to each other just not drinking because I'd, I'd been to all that. And I got raised with all the kids that were going to AA meetings following their parents around. And uh, when it was my turn to drink, I did it with a vengeance. I grew up in a house with big books all over I mean, this was before the hospitals had figured out how to make money out of us. So when you went on a 12-step call, you brought them home. My dad and Joe Motes ran over a guy's foot in the, in the, in the parking lot of Harbor General Hospital because they wouldn't let him in there because he's just drunk. And the guys haven't seen him. And they broke his foot, so they let him in the hospital. <laughs> Nobody really knows if that's true or not, but it's a good story. They did it. Here's a, little, here's a little secret. If you ever run into this, here's a, a technological, 12-step technolo technology. Um, I went on a 12-step call one time, and this guy was having seizures. He had poisoned himself, alcoholic poisoning, and he would drink fluid, and it would just come right back up, and he was jerking and twitching. He was a mess. And uh, we took him to Harbor General Hospital, 
brought him in there in the waiting room, and there's people in there with gunshot wounds, you know. I mean, nobody's really rushing around trying to help anybody here. And this guy's in bad shape. Well, here's what you do. What I did is I brought him up and I laid him out on the floor in front of, the, in front of where you sign in. And they don't like people laying on the floor. So what's the matter here? Well, this guy, he's really hurting. He, well, bring him in. Yeah. So just lay him on the floor. And they take him in. Well, I got raised in this house with, with big books and the 12 steps. And, and uh, you know, I'd be watching television and my dad would go get one and bring him home. And then I'd have to go in the other room while he pounded on the book and pointed his finger and said the same old lame-ass stuff we say to him today. You know, I mean, not much has changed, really. You know, I mean, the demographics have changed. The type of person that comes in has changed. You know, there's a lot of therapy has infiltrated AA. Some good, some bad. You know, but the, the, the pitch is the same. You know, and uh, when it was my turn to drink, I couldn't wait. I remember waiting around for when it was going to happen. I mean, there's nothing worse than being in a house with two people with clear eyes that know exactly what's going on in your head. These aren't people that are like good people. They were drunks that don't drink anymore, so they know exactly what you're thinking. Exactly. Even before you drink, they know what you're thinking. So when I drank, it got better. It got better. I drank alcoholically right from the start. Some people cross a line. I never crossed any line. I got drunk. I threw up in my record player. Well, it had a lid on it. You you could hide it. I went to a party, and they dumped me on the front lawn. I crawled in the house. I was 14, 15 years old, threw up in the record player, crawled down the hall, was sitting in the bathroom with a trash can between my legs because it was coming out both ends. All of a sudden, the door opens up. I look up, and there's my parents, my mother standing there with this aghast expression on her face, and my father standing behind her laughing hysterically. (laughs) Both of them, in their own way, were saying, Oh, my God. It begins. We've got our own in-house alcoholic. And and that's how I drank. And it was fun for a while, but just for a short while. It got bad real fast. I was 17 years old. I was a senior in high school. I was a bad drunk. And uh, drinking in the parking lot, drunk every week. And I went back for my 20-year high school reunion, and I met this guy, and I told him, I said, I was sober by this time, and, and I... I said to the guy, I said, God, remember when we were in that car club? We were drunk every weekend. He goes, I wasn't drinking. And I go, what do you mean? You were with me every weekend. We were drunk every weekend. He says, you were drunk every weekend. I mean, you ever notice that? I didn't notice. <laughs> I was busy, you know. I thought everybody was drunk like me, you know. And it wasn't true. Most of them, like, straightened up and stuff, you know. And... uh I was a child of the 60s. I am a child of the 60s. I graduated from high school in 1965. It was a great time. We weren't really getting loaded. We were making a political statement. We were changing the world. Now, every decade since has wanted to be the 60s. You know? And it was a good time. But see, my story, I want to sober up quick here because recovery is a lot more interesting. I was a surfer and a biker and a tough guy. I rarely went to the beach. My motorcycle rarely ran. And I was afraid to fight. But I looked really good. 
I looked good. I had a chrome Nazi helmet for a hat and a primary chain for a belt and greasy Levi's and big black boots with chains around them. I have tattoos all over me. I had a clip-on earring because I didn't want to hurt myself. <laughs> and I had a little 22 pistol in my back pocket, and if you, if you pushed me in a corner, I'd pull my little gun on you. I'm big and scary. I can keep you away with a look, you know. And, uh, but I was full of shit, like most of us. It's a common thread that runs through fist steps, if you've never noticed, you know. Just being full of it, trying to be something you're not, you know. I was always trying to be what I thought a man was or what was hip or what was cool. And, you know, and when I came into AA, not much changed. By the time I was 22, I ended up in the Oregon State Mental Institution because I needed a rest. <clears throat> it's tough out there. You know, and I'm just kind of a sensitive guy in a cold, cruel world, you know. <laughs> sort of an artistic type, you know. And, uh, I went to my first shrink when I was 13 years old. My mother felt that I was a bit disturbed. I guess it was because I prayed for my father's death and I would double over in fits of anger until the bile would come up into my throat and I would just gag on it and I'd slam walls and sit on the bed and rock back and forth and bang my head into the headboard. That's what happened to all my hair. <laughs> that in the 60s. And, uh, and I went to my first shrink then. And when I was in the Oregon State Mental Institution, I was in there for two weeks and then I did another two-week follow-up. And by that time, by the time I was 22, I was sticking needles in my arm every day. And, and I had gotten married and I had two kids and I lost a house and a couple of cars and several jobs. And I mean, when you end up in the mental institution, it wasn't like a bad week or two before then, you know. It kind of built up. And I was a bad drunk at 17, um, 18, 19, 20, went to Oregon to grow my own. And, and I was a mess. I was a mess. I, I don't know. It's like... You can talk about the 60s, Led Zeppelin was my god, you know, I was protesting stuff and doing things. But I wasn't a participant in any of that. And I lied about that. You know the lies we tell, they're fist step tough. You know, I told lots of lies, you know. Me and Joan Baez were really close, you know. And, uh, you know, I mean, my son just did a, a book report. He, I helped him do, build an album like a scrapbook for Jimi Hendrix, you know. It was all I could do to keep from telling him that I knew Hendrix, you know. I mean, it was like, you know, and I, you know the, some of the tendencies are, you know, because they, they look at you like you're from that time. You must have known him, you know. And it's like, well, it was close, I, you know. And uh, I didn't make many concerts, you know. I was busy. I was busy. And uh, so at 22, I'm in the mental institution. Sometime after that, I spent two and a half years in group therapy. I've been gestalted and rolfed and primal screamed. I've read most of it. I know more about myself than is safe to know. Most of it is pretty useless information. But I have had many awarenesses, many epiphanies, walking out of the shrink's office going, yes, well, that, that's it. You know, and then you go and drink a half a gallon of wine and think about it some more. <laughs> Mull it over. Then it try to affect some change in your life, you know, based upon this knowledge that I have. You know, and uh, 
I don't recommend that. Alcoholics Anonymous is not therapy. Alcoholics Anonymous is not a self-help program. It is a spiritual program. It is linear. You can read the steps and you can make sense of it. You look at it and you go, well, yeah, of course. You know, I mean, confess the sins, pay back the money, and help others. That makes sense. But how do you get there? How does that actually happen? Isn't it like sitting in a room, listening to the shrink, and agreeing with him? I mean, I can sit here and I can agree with the 12 steps. They're hard to argue with. And everybody else around me agrees that I shouldn't drink. They felt that ever since I was a teenager. All the therapists never really determined that I was an alcoholic. They figured that I had emotional problems, which is true. You drink enough, you get emotionally screwed up. You know, you come from a family that beat you and punched you out, or you, there's sexual abuse issues, or incest, or one thing or another, you're going to be scarred. There's no doubt about that. The solution to my problem seems to lie in the realm of the spirit, not in the intellectual. I have never been, I'm pretty smart. I have a good command of the English language. I've been to school. I've read some books. I've had some very good therapists. As a treatment for alcoholism, it's useless. I'm a drunk. And if I drink long enough and hard enough, I will lose my soul. And I cannot think that back into me. It, can't, it won't happen. Five years before I got sober, I knew that I was hopeless and helpless. I knew that. I knew it before then. I knew I was an alcoholic for a long time. And it, that knowledge didn't do anything. Bill Wilson and Bill's story is the epitome of that. I mean, his whole entire message is that self-knowledge doesn't cut it. It doesn't get it. I just recently read a biography of uh, Sam Shoemaker, the guy that ran the Calvary Church, and Wilson went there one time and he was drunk. And he went down the aisle of the church on his knees and gave himself to Jesus. They had to take him down off the podium, you know. And he... I saw at the International Convention his family Bible where he wrote his oaths not to drink anymore. This was an educated man, good-looking guy, good athlete, a man of good earning capacity. You know, He was a stockbroker, a pretty sharp guy, had a good wife, came from a good family. So what? He knew he shouldn't drink, and then he met Silkworth, and Silkworth told him, you have a disease, and the goose hung high. Armed with that, he fared forth, and the goose hung high. And he was able to laugh at the gin mills. As he went, and then he was pounding his fist on the point. What the hell happened? I got an armistice day, 19, you know. Off he went. And he was hopeless and helpless. Then Abby Thatcher comes to see him. Another Oxford group guy. They sobered up Abby, and they said, go get the worst drunk you know. Bill Wilson. The only guy he could con into getting in the airplane with him to complete the jag, Bill Wilson. So he sits before Bill Wilson, and the, the line I love about in the book, when he meets Ebby, when Ebby is there, is, there he sat before me. There he sat. Wilson knew this guy was a drunk, and he also knew that he was a little cracked about religion. 
He had that starry-eyed look. The old boy was on fire, all right. But let him rant. My gin will last longer than his preaching. What a great line. But there he sat before me, 60 days sober. It clearly worked. 60 days without a drink. And he couldn't argue with that. His heart couldn't argue with that. His head saw the man sit there. But he was sober. And he thought the guy was dead or locked up. Bill Wilson never drank again. He went to the hospital. Ebby went with him to the hospital. That is not intellectual. Ebby didn't say anything new to him. Matter of fact, Ebby said something that made him gag. I've got religion. God, tell that to an alcoholic that's just stole money out of his wife's purse and he knows he's going to burn in hell forever. It sure as hell wouldn't have worked for me. I had resolved the God issue in my mind. But there he sat before me. So there I sat in the Oregon State Mental Institution. The state of Oregon determined that I should leave. I agreed. And I came back down to California, and I became normal. And what normal is for an alcoholic like this is <clears throat> you have to get a job. And when you're unemployable, you go to your dad. It doesn't matter how much you hate him. If he's got something you need, you go to your dad. He let me live in his garage, and he gave me a job at his machine shop. The other thing, because normal people usually work, the other thing that you need is you need a woman to take care of you. To find an Al-Anon, preferably untreated. <laughs> They're good for that. You can be a really good project for them. Because, you see, it's a group effort getting me through life. It takes lots of people. And they've got to be heading generally in the same direction. And every once in a while, you've got to gather them all back together and reaffirm the uh, purpose. Because you know? they have a tendency to wander. You know? You've got to get them back. So I found the woman. And the other thing is you cannot drink during the week. You can only drink on the weekends. And the reason for that is, you'll find this hard to believe, but this is true. The normal people, they go to work on Monday, which is a pretty big deal in and of itself. They will follow that up with Tuesday. Listen up. Then they go on Wednesday also. And then Thursday and then Friday, and they do that week after week after... I'm, I've, I've, I've seen it. I've seen it. I don't know about you, but when I drink, I don't show up no matter what. I have sponsored guys that have told me that they've gotten through college and don't remember it. I couldn't find the school. How they do that, it's a different kind of alcoholism. It's like slower growing or something, you know? <clears throat> I went for the entrance exams at Harvard Junior College. I was so drunk, I passed out in the car in the parking lot. Never made it to the school. So, so you can't drink during the week. What you do is you smoke pot. <clears throat> well, there's a reason, and I know it's single as a purpose. But it's like not drugs. It's green, and it's from God, and it's... You know... It's, it's like what you do in between getting really loaded, you know. It's like, 
It's just maintenance, you know, to get you through the day. You know, you got to do, if you're not going to drink, you got to do something. Because you cannot, if you're an alcoholic like me, face the day without some cushion. There has to be a cushion. Um, so I did that for another 15 years. And as you might imagine, the experiment failed. Pretty soon I was drinking on Wednesdays and Thursdays, and, and it fell apart. And at 37 years old, um, I hit bottom. And I, uh, I hope I never, ever experience that kind of demoralization again in my life. I hope I never do. You know, we, we get sober and we face a myriad of problems. We face health issues, the death of loved ones, divorce, problems with children, getting laid off, fired, financial problems, a, a myriad of problems. And you'll be sharing about that with somebody and this, the asshole will tell you to make a gratitude list. You know, and, and you're standing there and you go, what have I got to be grateful for? The fact that you're standing there telling me the problem, that's what you should be grateful for. I have to remember that. That, wasn't, that last drunk was not my worst drunk. It was just the last one. And when I look back in hindsight, what happened to me is I just kind of fell over. I weighed over 300 pounds. I had gotten into a political discussion in the second story bar, which was an error. But I was right. And they threw me out of the place and I shattered my ankle so I walked with a pronounced limp. Have you ever been right and in the hospital? So I walked with this pronounced lip, limp. The muscles in my upper body had atrophied, and my, uh, I had a pinched nerve in my right arm, so my right arm was curled up against my side, and I couldn't reach out to shake your hand. My liver stuck out on one side, and what you do when your liver sticks out is you don't look down there and try not to bump into things, you know? And uh, it's probably what's going to kill me today. I've got, the, I've got that problem. And, uh, and I was a mess. And I was absolutely demoralized. I was drunk from the neck down. I could numb the pain in my body. Alcohol worked right to the end. I could numb the pain in my body, but I got no more mental and emotional relief from it at all. I had drank myself clear. Ever drank yourself clear? Three or four o'clock in the morning, just clear as a bell. That was never the plan, to be clear. Remember the party? Remember the party? Wasn't that the whole idea? To have a party. The whole idea was to have a party. I mean, back in the 60s, the road from Los Angeles to San Francisco was the road to Nirvana. It was summertime all the time, you know? The young ladies were discovering their sexuality. We were helping them as best we could, you know? Trying to rise to the occasion, so to speak, you know? Mostly talking about it, but, you know? So you get drink, you'd, you know, you drink it a little bit and you could go out and talk to people and have a party. And I ended up naked in my living room watching religious television taking notes. Party. You know? And don't read the notes in the morning. Very bizarre. You know? But there was no more party. There hadn't been a party. I had married again. I had two more children. The marriage was on the rocks. Business was failing. You know, and uh, I called the one person I fig figured would come and help me. I called my mother. And this was a woman at the time of 30 years in Al-Anon. My parents never preached to me, by the way. They never came and had the big talk. They just watched. They watched me. And years later, after I got sober some time, I found out 
what kind of agony they went through and what groups they were part of and what they shared about and what was going on behind the scenes. But they never preached to me. My mother came and silently got me and took me to a hospital program. That last night I drank, I drove around my old high school and got real maudlin and whiny. And There's another guy in the car, poor bastard. He's sober now. <laughs> he got so depressed it sobered him up, you know. And, uh, and uh, I drove home and I had that last bottle, glass of wine. And I remember my last drink. And I went into this hospital program. Now, I went into this place in Costa Mesa, a place called Starting Point. I was in there for 35 days. Anybody here went through Starting Point? Dude. And uh, this was like one more time, checking in. What Bill does when it gets rough, you check yourself in. You go for a rest, you know? And, uh, and this was another time. I really had no intention of getting sober, but I knew I had to do something. I was really sick. I was ill. I think I was afraid to die, really. I could hear the footsteps coming up behind me. And, uh, and I was frightened. I was scared. And uh, I went in this place, and I spent 35 days in there. It's a pretty straight-ahead place. They worked you up through a step, and they had therapy sessions and stuff. But I like psychotherapy. It's about my favorite subject, me. You know, I am my favorite subject, and I like it. I have fun with it. I, I've always enjoyed it. You know, so guys I sponsor that are in therapy I go, tell what do he say? You know, and I'll tell them, <laughs> oh, never mind. Well, while I was in there, they would have these therapy sessions. They'd say, okay, who wants to be in the hot seat? I'd raise my hand. I'll do it. You know, what the hell? You know, and you know, it's like you, you, you can make up stuff. If you, if, I don't have any problem telling you about me. And if it's not interesting enough, I'll just make some stuff up. You know, I mean, keep it interesting. Keep, it, keep the ball rolling, you know. And they made me wear a sign around my neck while I was in there that said, I am not a counselor. <laughs> this is the truth. Because evidently there was some confusion. I really, they made me wear this cardboard sign. I had to make it up and I wore it with a rope and then I had to go pour everybody coffee in the morning for breakfast. And they, they thought I was arrogant or something. I don't know what it was. And, uh, but it was a pretty straight ahead place. And after 35 days I got out. And I showed up going to meetings. And because the sad thing about all of this is is where we end up after the insurance money runs out, after the doctors are all done with us and the therapists, and we end up in AA. This is the world's aftercare program. There's nowhere else to go. This is it. Linoleum floors and metal folding chairs for the rest of our natural lives. Very uplifting. <laughs> I was not thrilled to be in my old man's club. You know what I mean. Anybody else here has had that experience of losing the war? And they all look at you with that smile like, yeah. <laughs> you know. So I had to go to meetings. And I was scared. By the time of 35 days or whatever, I knew I couldn't drink anymore. I had come to that conclusion. And I also knew, because nowadays it's very clear in Alcoholics Anonymous, whereas in my father's time it was not so clear, that we don't do dope either. My father has watched many men die of drug addiction taking birthday cakes in Alcoholics Anonymous because you couldn't talk about it. 
One of the things he says when you ask him about what's changed in AA, because all the drug addicts kind of chased him out of AA for a while. He didn't like it. He didn't like the language. He didn't like all the outside issues. When I got sober, he kind of came back into Alcoholics Anonymous more than he was before. And he says, boy, it is very clear what sobriety is in AA now. There is no doubt. We don't smoke any non-habit-forming marijuana. We don't snort any little white powder just to perk up in the morning a little bit, you know. I believe the reason God gave us cocaine is so alcoholics could drink more, you know. But there's no doubt about it. And when I walked out of that hospital, I knew. Because, see, I had hidden the pot and the cocaine for later. And my wife got a hold of it. But I knew then I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything. And I had never done that. I had never lived life at all, ever, since I was 14 or 15 years old, without something between me and you. Without something. And in the end, all there was was alcohol. There was no dope anymore. It was me and a gin bottle. And I was drinking my soul up. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had no emotional connection to another living human being. And I had children. And I lived in the house with them. And there was no emotional connection to another living human being in my life. Only an alcoholic knows the truth of being in a room and being alone. It's the truth. There was no connection. So I was frightened. I had nowhere to go. I had lost touch with all things human, all, re all reliance on all things human. And I was alone. So after a couple of weeks of walking around being scared to death, I knew I had to get one of these sponsor things. So I saw this guy. And one night in a Saturday night speaker meeting, I went up and I asked him to be my sponsor. And he says, I'll meet you at the Hermosa Beach Alano Club be there at 8 o'clock. The meeting starts at 8.30. Be there at 8 o'clock and we'll discuss it. And I thought, uh-oh, there's going to be a test. <laughs> so I put up at the Alano Club at 8 o'clock and he took me around the Alano Club and he asked me a couple of questions. First thing he asked me, he says, are you willing to go to any length for victory over alcohol? Pretty lame stuff. You know? And I, you know, hospital programs are great because they teach you all the buzzwords and you can speak correctly right away. You know, just don't speak very long, you know. But you, can, you can talk. So I knew the question was coming. And there's some new people in here. If no one's ever asked you that question, I suggest that you just say yes because you don't know what they really mean by it. And if you say no, you have to listen to them for another 10 minutes or so, which can be pretty painful. So I said, yes, victory over alcohol, you and me, buddy. You betcha. And he asked, the second thing he asked me, he says, I noticed that when you identify yourself, you call yourself an alcoholic and an addict. I said, yeah, well, I did a lot of drugs, and he taught me to do that in the hospital. So what? He says, well, I might suggest to you, if you're calling yourself an addict because you think it's a little hipper, slicker, and cooler, you might want to drop it and be like everybody else for the first time in your life. This is Alcoholics Anonymous. And I can remember standing there in the darkness in this parking lot. And he's a short guy. He's like this. He's got a full head of hair and he's 10 years younger than me, all of which pisses me off. You know? and, and I'm looking down at him and what was going on in my head was, who the hell do you think you are? And what came out of my mouth was, okay. It's like, 
when you're fat, bald, and 40, and you're in your old man's club, there's no more argument. You know, there, there's just no more debate. I mean, you don't need me here. You don't need me. I need you. There's nowhere else for me to go. I remember one time being sober sometime, like two or three years, walking out of the Alano Club pissed off because I'll tell you something, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous is something to be survived. It will not keep you sober. If all you have is the fellowship, you're screwed. Because we will borrow money from you and not pay it back. We'll hit on your girlfriend. We won't show up to your party. We'll, we'll ignore you when you walk in the room. We'll talk behind you, your back. This is the, the dysfunctional center of the universe here. Our social skills are less than zero. They're negative. The absolute worst thing we do is relationships. It's how you can judge your spiritual condition. Look at the relationships you have around you. If these people are armed, you're in trouble. So this fellowship hurts. And I was walking out of that loud club because you pissed me off again. You said the wrong thing. And I was storming across the parking lot, and I stopped in the middle of the parking lot and said, Bill, where the hell are you going to go, man? There's nowhere to go. I'm stuck with you. Oh. I remember standing in the back of the Alano Club. The first, time, the first meeting I showed up to was the Gong Show at the Hermosa Beach Alano Club on Friday night. It was a very strange place. Everybody was 13 years old with blue hair. And I'm standing in the back of the room, and you people are walking up there going, getting your little chip things saying, I'd like to thank God and my sponsor for my sobriety. And I thought, God, I can't do this. I can't do it. And then you sang, Happy Birthday. You see, I'm hip. The AA is not hip. It's not hip. It's beyond lame. It's painfully lame. So there I sat, one more humiliation when he said the attic thing to me, and I thought, God, I remember driving home that night going, this is going to be hard. And how did he know? How do you know these things about me? How did he know? How did he know that I was just trying to be hip? I mean, he took the last bit of hip I had left. I have no hair. All I had, at least being a drug addict, is contemporary, you know? It's like rock and roll and stuff, you know? But I did, the last thing I wanted to be was a garden variety, lame-ass drunk like my father. Jeez. Oh. He said, be at my house Thursday, 5 o'clock. Read the doctor's opinion. Make notes in the margin about what you agree with and what you don't agree with, and we'll discuss it. So I did my homework. You know, I went and I read the doctor's opinion. I made notes in the margin. I showed up at his house at 5 o'clock. He didn't trust me that I'd read it, so he had me sit there and read it to him out loud. One more little humiliation. Sitting in this stranger's living room who isn't charging me any money, reading this lame book to him, 
Well, in there, in the doctor's opinion, it describes four or five different kinds of alcoholics. He stopped me there and he said, which one are you? And we discussed it. And I said, well, I think on this one here. He says, well, circle it, put a star next to it, you're in the book. <laughs> My favorite subject. I thought, well, that's pretty cool. I'm in the book. And he explained to me, he says, you should identify with this book. It isn't written to you, it's written about you. And if you don't identify with it, there's a problem. And you just said that you're in the book, so evidently, you're okay. Okay. Well, if you read on there, it says the only thing that's going to save an alcoholic of those varieties is a complete psychic change. And we discussed that, and we determined I needed one of those. <laughs> that, you know, my, as Alan Watts said, my perception of the world around me should never, ever be confused with reality. I mean, the way I look at things is just a little tweak. You know, you drink long enough, you get warped. You know, I, I love the part in the big book where, where Silkworth talks about you know, the alcoholic life seems like the only normal one. We come, we're able to accept this way of life. I was telling Karen earlier, the guy that I took to the Harbor General Hospital, that I laid on the floor and he was having seizures in the hospital and I was there with him, I thought, this guy will never drink again. Poof. Yeah. A couple of weeks later, he was out there. I mean, it's like we, we, we accept this stuff. It becomes okay. Somehow we rationalize it in our own mind. In Bill's story, he says, Common sense will then become uncommon sense. And what, what does he mean by that? What he's talking about is the alcoholic common sense. The common sense that we construct in our head, the intellectual thing that we construct in our head. When we get sober, if we get woken up, it becomes uncommon sense. We stand there, moment of clarity, and go, God, how could I have lived like that? What was I thinking? So there you sit in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, sitting in this stranger's living room, reading this book. Evidently something's happened or you wouldn't stay. If you'll notice any of you that sponsor people, most of the time they don't show up. You give them an alcoholic a couple of days out there on his own to rethink things, he goes, oh shit, I ain't going, I don't even know that guy. You know, what was I thinking? You know. So he explained to me that his job as a sponsor is to help bring about this psychic change, that it's different than the moment of clarity. The psychic change is an evolutionary process. It takes years. It takes years. People are always saying, don't leave before the miracle. Well, God damn it, don't leave after it either. It takes a little time. It takes some time. I thought it was 10. Then I got 10. And I'm going to be 15 soon, so I think it's 20. Stick around. Stick around and see what happens. It takes some time to live differently, to build up experience that causes your heart to change. It takes a while. So he explained to me that his job as a sponsor is to help bring this about. He said, now, we can sit here and talk about what you think your problems are, your wife, the job. And he says, I'll do that to keep you from sharing about it in the meetings. Alcoholics Anonymous is not about how your day went. It's about recovery. This was his approach. He says, my job as a sponsor is to help bring about this psychic change. Now, I might suggest to you that if you have a sponsor that is not taking you through the process of the 12 steps, maybe you have a spiritual advisor. Maybe you have a good friend. Maybe you have a father that you never had. Maybe you have a brother that you never had. But just maybe, maybe you don't have a sponsor. 
This man did me a few really good favors. He had the courage to take on my case. He had the courage to stay my sponsor and not become my friend and my buddy. Now, after 15 years, are we close? You bet. But he's not my buddy. He's my sponsor. I have buddies, as spiritual advisors. He's one of them, actually. But he has stayed my sponsor. Very important, I think. Bill Wilson, in writing about the ninth concept, which is a strange thing that's in the service manual, the concepts, very odd things, very extremely profound. He makes a, makes a comment in there in talking about leaders, that we need leaders, as Kevin alluded to. And he says, let's not get too carried away with principles before personalities, lest we become mindless and faceless automatons. Every sponsor is a leader as well as a teacher. It is my job in Alcoholics Anonymous to develop a program that has depth and weight, to do the work I have been assigned. The reason I am sober is to carry the message to other people. My sponsor taught me this in the way he lives. He took me to his home to read the book so I could see how he lives. I started after a few years to do that because I thought, I wonder what I'm hiding. Why wouldn't I want you to see how I live? Am I standing up here at the podium, pitching the good pitch, doing all the theater that I love so dearly, and then lusting after the 12-year-old girls in the audience, being a sexual predator in Alcoholics Anonymous, of which there is plenty of that going on? Do I go home and beat the wife and scream at the children till the spit comes out of my mouth all over their face, and then come back and share about the meetings, what my problems are? And sponsor my buddies down at the office so they won't go home and see how I live? Is that who I am? There's plenty of that in AA. I've seen it. I don't want to be like that. My sponsor raised me to be a member in good standing of Alcoholics Anonymous. At six months sober, he said, go down and sign up on the 12-step list at the central office. You cannot be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous unless you're on the 12-step list at the central office. Shit, I ran down there, man. I was looking for the identification card, you know. I didn't want to get kicked out now. I finally found a place that let me stay, you know. So we showed up there every week and we read a chapter in the book. We read Bill's story and he told me, he says, if anybody asks you, you're on the first step or you're on the second step. The first step was pretty easy. It was clear to me that my life was, that I was powerless and my life was unmanageable. The second step says I'll be restored to sanity, enough sanity to not take the first drink. I figure I need that. You know, I had problem with God. Everybody has problems with God. The third step says that I'm going to turn my life and my will over to this strange concept in the second step. Now, the third step talks about life and will. What life and will? What's it talking about? You know, you ever hear anybody walk up to you, you have a problem or something, they say, well, just turn it over. Well, just slap them. They don't get it. You know, they don't get it. It isn't an intellectual thing. It isn't something you, oh, yes, I forgot. I should have turned it over. Okay, it's done. You know, I don't believe it works like that. The life and will that it's talking about is the fourth step. The life and will that got me to Alcoholics Anonymous, the resentments, four columns. The resentment, why I'm resentful, how it affected me, turn the page, read on. What was my part? The first inventory you do will have a very slim fourth column. The one that you do at 10 years sober will be really good. 
There will be some clarity. Four columns. There's a fear list. can be associated with resentments, but not necessarily. And then there's a relationship list, the sex list, the sheep stories. Everybody has one. It may not have actually been a sheep, but it might have looked like one. You know? All kidding aside, it's a relationship list. It's, it's sex relations with people. Where was I selfish? Where did I instill jealousy? That is the life and will that's talked about in the third step. The fifth step is the physical and literal turning it over. You cannot do... This are opinions, by the way, if you haven't noticed. These are opinions. I always like to hear the speaker's opinion, you know. You know, people say, the longer I'm around here, the less I know. That hasn't happened to me yet. You know? I figure I know a lot about sobriety. It's the most interesting thing that's ever happened to me. Why wouldn't I know something about it? I've lived it for almost 15 years. I should know something about it. I shouldn't be stupid about it. I should know a lot more about sobriety and recovery than I did when I first came in. You would think so, wouldn't you? If I'd been paying attention? If I'd done some inventories? If I interacted with people? If I actually sponsor people alone in a room, me and another man, talking about real, live stuff. The reason you don't say no in Alcoholics Anonymous is because you don't know what's good for you. Would I actually start making decisions about what I will or won't do? Isn't that what I did for most of my life? You ever hear people that have got some time around now, they've kind of drifted away, and they say to you, they say, this is a key statement. I'm going to take care of myself now. Well, here's the gun. Just blow your head off. I took care of myself for 37 years. And I ended up with linoleum floors and metal folding chairs and lots of therapy. The last thing, if you ever catch yourself in alone in a room thinking about yourself, get out of the room! If there's somebody else with you, take them with you. Go surfing or something. No, stop it. It does me no good, and I doubt that it will ever do me any good to sit around thinking about me on any level, no matter how I rationalize it. It's not healthy for me. So the fifth step, I actually turn it over. It's a physical thing. It's an action that you do. That's the third step to me. You can't do the third step without the fourth and fifth step. The sixth and seventh step are two paragraphs in the book. You say the prayer, it's over. I think we'll be working on our character defects the rest of our lives. That's where the psychic change comes in. All of a sudden, I'm not now empowered. You ever heard somebody, well, I'm working on sloth this week. You know, I, I just, I don't think it works like that. It hasn't been my experience. If I want to work on my character defects, make some amends. You'll find all of them. There will be. Sponsor people. You'll look at your prejudice right in the eye. Your intolerance. Your impatience. All that ugly little stuff that we are. You'll sit, somebody will be sitting on your couch right next to you, pouring out his soul, crying, and you don't feel a damn thing. You're hungry. As you look at him sympathetically and nod, There's a guy around AA, been sober a long time. He always tells the story of how I told him how to commit suicide. You always hear this. Many people have done this. He called me up and he was upset he was going to kill himself. And I said, well, this is what you do. You get a gun, preferably large caliber. Walk out waist deep into the ocean so that if you should miss a little bit, you'll fall and drown. 
He was shot. He's still alive, fortunately. You know. But you'll run into all of it. All of your impatience. And you'll run into pomposity and arrogance. And my sponsor told me, Bill, when they're talking, when you're talking to them and their eyes roll back in their head, you've gone on too long. That's happened. The eighth and ninth step, you make a list of the people that you've injured. There's several categories of them. There's money. There's the emotional ones. There's also people that you forgot to thank. They were kind to you. you know, I would have never thought of that. I did my fifth step. When I did my eighth step, my, when I did my fifth step, my sponsor told me, he said, when you walk into the front room of your house, the front door of your house, when you stick the key in the door, think about the guy that's walking through there compared to the guy that walked through that door six months ago. And I did that. And I said the first real prayer. And I said, nay, nah, nah. First real one. All of a sudden it hit me that the obsession to drink had been lifted. And I had never asked for that. I would have never thought to. I'd always had it. And it suddenly it hit me. I'd been too busy to notice. And I said a prayer of thanks. Just thanks. You know, that I'd been lifted. He went around and started telling people then, you can talk to him now. He's okay. Well, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, you're a member now. And I said, well, I thought the only requirement. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, we say that to people so that they won't just scare them off. He says, but if you want to stay around here, there's some things that you've got to do. And you've done some of them. You're part of what's going on around here now. Alcoholics Anonymous has become the motorcycle gang I was never really part of. Really. I wore the jacket and I had the colors and I had the motorcycle parked in the garage, of course. But I was never part of it. That wasn't me. It was the football team I was never part of because I just couldn't show up, you know. You've become all of that to me. It's not so lame now when you go up and take your ships because I know who you are. I've watched you come in now. I hear the music. Happy birthday wasn't so lame when it was my birthday. <laughs> if you think it's lame, try and get one. You know? When they start singing for you, the music changes. When we first come in, and whatever you do, don't laugh at the jokes. That's how you catch alcoholism. You know, if you get the, they don't get this down at the Rotary Club. You know, they don't think it's funny. But I became part of Alcoholics Anonymous. I started making amends. When I made amends, my life started to change. I made the apologies. I went to the doctor I never paid. I made the amends to my father, whom I hated so passionately. That night when I drove home after making amends to him, that anger and hatred that I felt most all of my life, I could feel it pulled out of my chest. You know, um, you can argue about people that have spiritual awakenings about what really happened to them. You can argue the point. Well, you know, but you can't argue that something happened. Something has happened to me here. My life has changed. This is the most fascinating, stunning thing that has ever happened to me. I talked to an Indian guru one time. He says, I love talking to alcoholics and drug addicts. He says, they already get it. Everybody else is looking for it. You've been awakened. You know what that's like. I hang with people in AA that are conscious of the fact that their life has been saved. That's a stunning thing. People pay lots of money for that. We get it for nothing. Our number just came up. What a stunning thing. If there is anything, anything, that stops you from sharing this with another alcoholic one-on-one. -on -one. Work on getting rid of it. Have you ever heard somebody say, I don't sponsor people? How could you possibly say that? What are you thinking? 
Where do you think you are? What do you think this is? A social club? I don't sponsor people. You should be ashamed of yourself. If you're not grateful, you should be ashamed of yourself. What do you think this is? What do you think you are? What do you think you're here for? What is the work? What are we supposed to do? Hang out with our buddies? We do a lot of that. But how could I not help someone that asked for it? And more than that, how could I not look for ones to help? When I walk into the meeting, am I paying attention? Can I see the guys that are standing around the outside edge that aren't standing with us? Do I have a moment to walk up and ask this person what his name is? Do you have a seat in the room? Why don't you come sit with me? There's some coffee right over there. What got you here? What's a nice guy like you doing in a place like this? You know? Maybe that's the first time anybody's laughed for helped him to laugh. Maybe that's the first time somebody said anything to him for a long time. I was standing out at the Ilana Club a bunch of years ago, and there was this old wino that was coming in and out and eating the donuts and smoking the cigarettes and bumming money off of people for a few weeks. And my sponsor came up to him because he was drunk again and said, If I find you a bed, will you go? If I find you a place to stay, will you go? And the guy goes, well, sure. So my sponsor runs off to make a phone call, and the wino kind of wandered away, and there was another guy standing there with me. I said, what are we wasting our time with that guy for? He doesn't want to get sober. This guy said to me, who who the hell are you? I said, what? He goes, that's what I look like when I got here. Where the hell do you think you are? If he can't come here, where the hell can he go? Oh, whoa. Sponsor comes back and says, I found the bed. He looks at me and says, go get your car. Well, see, the thing was, he told me a long time ago, he says, the reason I was sent to Alcoholics Anonymous is that they needed better transportation. And I had the car, so I drove the AA assault vehicle. I still do. I still do. So I go get my car. I drive up. They put the drunk in the front seat. They throw his bedroll in the back. No one else gets in the car. Now, personally, from what I've learned over the years, that's illegal. In the AA rule book, I think there's supposed to be two. But anyway, they sent up with this guy. So I'm driving him to the way back in, and he starts talking to me, and he says to me, God, what the hell happened to me, man? What happened? I used to have a wife, and I had a couple of kids, and I look over at him, and underneath the beard and all the hair and all the matted hair, I realize he's not much older than me. Maybe he's even younger. He just looked really bad. And uh, I started talking to him. We started talking. By the time I got there, I was holding his hand. I helped him get checked into the place, and I told the guy, you know, take care of my buddy here. I mean, this became my own personal loser. And uh, when I drove home that night, well, we are the drugs of society. That's who we are. We're not supposed to make it. We're not supposed to be here in a place like this doing this. This is where we're supposed to be. When I drove home that night, I said a prayer. And it wasn't a prayer of thank God it's not me. It was a prayer of thank you, God, for letting me know it is me. That is who I am. I am you. We're the same. There's not much difference between us. That's how come you know all this stuff about me. That's how come I can't pull any wool over your eyes if I take the, if I have the courage to be honest. Just try to be honest. The tenth step is all about saying I'm sorry when I step on your foot. The eleventh step is the great journey in Alcoholics Anonymous. Getting closer to whatever it is that saved my life. You know, it would behoove me to do that if my sobriety is, is contingent upon my spiritual condition. The twelfth step is why we are all here. It isn't enough to just speak at meetings or flip hamburgers at the Labor Day picnic. 
It's not enough. This program came directly from the Oxford group. They believed in what they called individual evangelism. What Bob and Bill did when they formed Alcoholics Anonymous is they used what they had been taught by these people, by Roland Hazard and Eddie Thatcher and Sam Shoemaker and Frank Puckman, people like that. They taught these men how to save souls. That's what we do here. We save souls, literally. We don't straighten out character defects and neuroses and stuff. We don't do that. We're human beings. We all have them. We save souls. I am an AA evangelist. I believe in individual evangelism. We don't sober them up by the tent pole. It's one at a time. We don't even get them sober. God does that. God sends us here sober. We get sober for nothing. Alcoholics Anonymous isn't about sober. It's about living. It's about living that way. How do I live that way? How do we live that way? I'm not alone anymore. There's two types of people in AA. There's those who work the steps and those who don't. Those who don't think that there's a click. And they're right. It's those who work the steps. If you want to be in the click, come and ask. Thank you.